guys what's up so for this interview I went across the pond Sarah who is an architect filmmaker and all-around awesome woman sat down for this interview via zoom of course because we can't travel we basically talked about the differences between our two countries and about the differences between black Americans versus black British brat black Britons it sounds weird when I say black Brit black British because I say black Americans it seems more common because I would say black Americans or comfortable for me to say black Americans but to say black Britons that's like a, it's almost a tongue twister. But anyway, been a couple of weeks since this interview and I keep thinking about how I should have went overseas for my architectural education because Rome is right there. France is right there. The African diaspora is a good airplane sales away. Like I can, I feel like I could hop to Sierra Leone. I could hop into Liberia. I could hop to Nigeria from Britain. Or Scotland, or Ireland. I feel like I can experience architecture better over there than for me to look at slides. I just feel that I could trace, become more in touch of where you're from because you're closer to that continent than it is here. It's kind of like thousands of dollars and I don't know anybody versus I think everybody's already there. I don't know. If, if I'm making sense or not, but I, I never thought of it until after the interview and I started thinking about it more and more. And when I was in college, I couldn't afford to study abroad program. And then secondly, I wasn't comfortable traveling with my class. I would be the only black person in that traveling abroad class. And I felt extremely uncomfortable. I didn't trust any of my classmates <laughs> my studio mate and in the sense that if something was to go down who has my back and you know I probably would have made friends outside I think they went to France I think that's what and and that's another reason why I didn't go to is the language thing I'm horrible at French like my mouth just refuses to form those words and I already have problems pronouncing people's names how would I survive I don't know anybody there at the time so it was money comfortability and language and so I didn't go in hindsight I think it's a school I think I, I should have picked the school to tag along with that's what I should have done but I didn't one there was one professor she really pushed me into going and I was like no no I can't go how am I work that's another thing too it was like how am I supposed to work how am I supposed to pay bill how is this going to work like I don't have a I don't have a I'm not a trust fund kid like how am I supposed to go overseas study whatever it is I have to study and feed myself and go out and entertain like how how is this supposed to work I cannot figure out this it was just what about the the apartment that I had while I was in school, like all these things were, were a huge factor. That's for me not being able to study abroad. But you know, now that I'm an adult, it's, it's, I mean, it would be a career move and it, it would be much more difficult for me. Well, I shouldn't say difficult. It'll be a bit more challenging because it, it won't be just me making the decision. Then if I was single and 
not own property or even if I did own property, I would have to do it to a man. It's, it's too much. Listen, there are black folks who were in the same situation, black and brown. I'm not black and brown people were in the exact same situation and they made it work. And I was not one of those people. I didn't even know anybody during my time in school that did that, that were that was black and had similar economic circumstances. Now, later on, as I make friends and so forth, I found out how they made it through and made that possible for them, but a little, a little too late for that. Another thing, too, that we touched upon, and this is later towards the end, and we started talking about Lola, and Lola is uh, a book that she is developing. Check her social media. So she's on Twitter and on Instagram. It's at XX underscore AOC or at studio dash AKI. And if I am, just check the show notes. This, this is, I'm going off of memory, but check the show notes. I included her handles on there. And in there she mentions a little Lola. So if you're wondering, like, what does Lola have to do with anything? That's what it, that's what it means. I think that's about it with Sarah. Oh, the thing's coming up. The next couple of interviews won't be architects. Well, there's one that's an architect or a couple of architects, but the others are not. And I'm getting back into why did I even start this podcast in the first place? to find out where I live and the history of it and so forth. So I'm able to talk to two historians. So I have a couple of interviews coming up in the pipeline. And thank you for listening. Thank you for your support. I will continue to do what I do and evolve and try to make this more, more learning and have fun at the same time. So. Anyway, I talk too much. <laughs> okay, so here's the interview. I was writing down all the things I want to talk to you about, and the list okay. kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. and oh, no. <laughs> answers. Um, but yeah, let's let's do it. I'm very excited. <laughs> okay, all right. So we never met. No, but, and we met online. Correct. We met online. Yeah, yeah we met. On, that's a good question because I was going to say. I feel as though I know you know, know you, but mm-hmm. ever meet. I feel as though we've met. I think it's probably just through Twitter, because I don't really do, I mean, I'm on Instagram, but I'm not as, I think it must be through Twitter. Yeah. And just kind of following each other's threads and that kind of thing. And then we probably have mutual. Yeah. I, I do research, obviously, on people, okay. and I couldn't find anything about you. Okay. Who you are. Okay. And how you grew up and stuff like that. Just to, Any, anything personal? You can, anything personal, yeah. Oh, that yeah. No, there isn't. Is there a reason, or do you want? I mean, can I? No, no. I that that's really interesting. I think because there isn't much out there because I I wouldn't have been interviewed that much. So maybe the questions haven't been asked or published. And when I've written things, I suppose I don't write a lot about my personal 
live. I might have written a little bit about my background. I'm happy to talk about it though. Okay, 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 okay. I, I realize I have to ask sometimes because some people are like, no, I don't want to talk to you about my life. Um, so are you born and raised in the London area? I grew up in London. I'm black British, or I suppose these days people say black, I would say black British West African. Really com it's becoming more and more complicated um, but uh, yeah so my I grew up in London and I actually grew up in the part of London that I currently live in sorry about that and that there are reasons for that but my parents are from West Africa they both came to the UK as children so I'm kind of almost second generation my father is Nigerian and he came to England when he was about eight and he came by himself on a boat from Nigeria and he was sent to Salisbury essentially to go to school so he was sent to boarding school from Nigeria aged eight by him by himself and he was brought up by British guardians his guardian happened to be a vicar so he spent his young life his formative years in in England kind of sort of West Country-ish, what we call the West Country. He went to school in Somerset. Uh, my mother came over a bit later. She came over when she was about 16, I think. She came over and trained to be a nurse and a midwife, and she landed in uh, Newcastle. And then, I don't really know how they met, but they both eventually kind of gravitated towards London. I guess, as you, as you did in, in, in those days and met here. And this is how I come to be. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, I'm half... Nigeria too? No, so, so my mother... No, sorry, she's from Sierra Leone. Okay. Um, and so that, that's quite interesting because she's from Sierra Leone and she's from Freetown, which is where the freed slaves went back to in 1887 that, that started. So... She's from Sierra Leone, she's Creole, she has a European surname, but I don't know much about her history, only that it's, it's something I'd like to uncover more of. I don't know my maternal, or didn't know my maternal grandfather, for example. He died when my mother was very young, so I don't know much about my history on that side. But yeah, I grew up in London, and uh, so this is the bit that you won't find much about online. My mother isn't very well. She has schizophrenia, which she's had my entire life since I was about six months old. So um, how did you get into architecture? Yeah, so obviously inevitable question. How did I, and I've been thinking about this a lot, so how did I get into architecture? Well, I Drawing is something I've always done. I grew up as an only child. That's really important. I grew up as an only child. So I had lots and lots of time to fill. I don't know if this had to do with my mother being ill. I don't think so. I just had lots of time to fill. So I drew and I read books and I kind of disappeared into my imagination. But drawing was a really strong part of it. And um, although I kind of toyed with the idea of being doctor because I wanted to fix my mum I think this is something that lots of children probably go through but also because it's a kind of good immigrant thing to do you know we become doctors we become lawyers we become engineers or whatever but not usually kind of things within the creative professions 
However, my father, because he had this kind of slightly unusual upbringing, he was very artistic and he had wanted to be an architect. So I learned to draw largely from him. He had been a drafts person in Salisbury when he was young and then he, he trained to be uh, a surveyor, building surveyor in London. And what had happened to him is that he'd wanted to become an architect, but his father died when he was quite young. And so the money that was funding his education basically ran out and he passed on his architectural ambitions to me, maybe, I don't know. Mm. I, so I learned to draw and I spent lots of my young life doing that. There was also this thing in the background of somehow, I'm post-rationalising this, but I think something about understanding, especially with my mother being ill, that the environment that we exist in is very important to um I, I grew up with this sense of wanting to somehow be involved in making people's lives better and I had this sense and I'd obviously absorbed the idea of what an architect might be from my father and I had this sense that the built environment was important I wanted to use my creative abilities rather than maybe just being a fine artist I, I wanted to sort of channel, channel them into something useful and into, into something that might help improve people's environments. I think that's me, that's possibly slightly post-rationalising, but I do remember that the statement I wrote to get into university was all to do with, was all to do with that kind of improving people's environments and people's mental health and so on. So that's, that's why architecture. Your neighbourhood growing up, did that influence that at all or...? Yeah, so that's an interesting one. I don't think so. Even though I grew up in an area that's now heavily gentrified, probably a little bit like it's analogous to somewhere like Brooklyn or Williamsburg. Mm-hmm. Probably really precisely, Williamsburg is really, it's probably a close, it's probably really similar because there's also a really large kind of Jewish population around here. So there's some kind of sim- some similarities. But yeah, so I grew up in an area of London that was probably pretty run down when my father moved here. And my parents were able to to buy a house, but probably only just in the, you know, in this part of town. But I don't have memories of, so we grew up in a house, so not not social housing or not, you know, not from my memory anywhere that was particularly run down. So I I didn't grow up with a sense of wanting to make make the area better. Yeah, I, I, did, I didn't really grow up with an immediate sense of that. I was obviously influenced by my father's profession, trying to reconcile having this creative streak, but also wanting to do something where I might be working with people. I know why you're asking, because, because speaking to American architects, um, especially to uh, Dr. Sutton, who I interviewed a while back, I, I don't know if this is more particular to the American condition, but definitely a sense of wanting to respond to what was happening in one's own community. That's not something I have a conscious sense of as as a young person. I think it was much more about individuals and their immediate environments, if if that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. Um, Because that, what you just said, was the reason why I got into architecture. And I thought that by becoming an architect, I can fix that. See, that. That's really interesting. I got more of a sense of that. As I say, I visited New York last year. And so I came over for a Black Females in Architecture event. I was sort of their invited guest. And I met lots of amazing young Black American women. 
and they were all absolutely driven by this desire to make their communities better. That's something that it's, it's very much part of how I get to where I am now, but it wasn't part of the, my kind of initial driver. It's something that happened later in my career. I had a kind of epiphany, which well, when we get there, I'll, I'll, I'll talk more about. But yeah, I was very struck by that, very kind of humbled that these young women were so driven and, and also kind of that they really felt that it was something they could do. I was kind of, there was so much confidence, you know, we, we, we could do it. Yeah. 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 I, I was, so inspired. I was completely blown away actually. Um, because it, it's not something, and maybe the UK condition is a little bit different or maybe just my experience is different. It's not something that I'd come across very much here. Not at that stage, not early in my kind of life as an architect. So we're going to go down memory lane, you know, just the progression, because you mentioned New York, and I did want to talk about that too. Have you visited Freetown or or Nigeria? I've been to Nigeria. So I first went to Nigeria when I was about nine. We did visit when I was a little baby, and I've seen the photos, but obviously I have no memory. (laughs) (laughs) I was there. There's photographic evidence, but I can't. I don't remember. I was about nine and we lived there for a year when I was 12 because my father was trying to re sort of relocating his career. We lived in Lagos, so mm-hmm. you know, third most populous city in the world. Oh, it or it, it's projected that it will be the third most populous city by 20 mm-hmm. something, so incredibly dense. And we lived in, in, in the heart of Lagos, uh, in a relatively middle-class neighborhood. And so this was my kind of first experience of, I mean, you, you find everything in Lagos. You find extremes of poverty, but you also find extremes of wealth. And my family kind of exists across, you know, the, the kind of spectrum of that. So I got to see poor housing I got to see we were in a relatively middle-class neighborhood and then I got to see the 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 other extreme which is sort of extreme wealth I I'd not I'd not seen anything quite like that quite like those extremes you don't London isn't the the disparities or at least at that time and to my nine-year-old eyes the disparities in London weren't as great there it may not be adequate but I guess there was some sort of safety net although that has been eroded um, kind of steadfastly and systematically over the past decade or two, three decades. Nigeria, you know, I still have memories of the music and the food and the driving through the streets and the sound of Lagos. And it's a pretty developed city with lots of innovation and energy. I came back with a real kind of sense of pride in that aspect of my history. And the thing about migration is it rips us away from those from those roots from those influences and you kind of exi- exist as this sort of semi-detached yeah, as this sort of detached being I don't know how to express that but you exist or at least I existed because of the way my family had migrated without a really strong sense of those roots and I think I got a real sense of confidence visiting um, yeah it's kind of like your superpower you, you came back and you're like I know who I am 
Absolutely. And I connected with family. You see your descendants. You see where you're from. Both my parents are from Trinidad. They both came up here, my father first, and then my mom. And I was a similar age when I first went down to Trinidad. And sad to say, it was a trip for my grandmother's funeral on my mom's side. Just to see the family and the gathering, because we're the only ones up here. It's just us. But I remember feeling the same way you were feeling. I came back from Trinidad and I have this different type of food, this type of different type of dialect. It was, it became my superpower. As an adult, I went back during my birthday and they threw me a surprise party. Mm-hmm. And at the party, I started crying because I've never had my family, my blood relatives all in one room celebrating my that's it it's that it's that it's that and Um, it was it was just oh my gosh like you know you're like who am I like that's my cousin that's my mother's daughter's child whatever the the lingo is and it's it's a physical thing you know it is feel it physically Yeah, yeah it is I'm gonna pause on the trajectory for a second and just I wanna talk about the comparisons of being American versus mm-hmm. being I, I call myself British it, British you know, person because Africa is like a stone throw away for you for me it's like thousands of dollars for you it could be a good sale you yeah, can yeah, yeah, absolutely. run home and it's easily connect your ancestry versus me even though I have Trinidad, the whole slave trade, so there's a little bit more, I don't want to say work, but I have to literally go down to Trinidad to trace back, okay, what ship did my folks come on? Or if we were part of like the indigenous, how did that work? But for you guys, you already know who you are. And I feel like that really shapes architecture because you can always draw back and understand certain things. From your last name, you can know what tribe you're from. That's very true. And we, I mean, even though my father was very young when he came here and doesn't speak, he doesn't speak the language anymore, there will be members of extended family that do. So you, you hear the language. So it's kind of it is present and the Nigerian identity is quite a strong one. There's a big Nigerian community here. There's a new wave of migration. I think we grew up slightly detached, detached from it, which has to do with having a parent that's ill, but that's another story. But certainly kind of as I've got older, I've become kind of more aware of, and there are just more, like more, more Nigerians here. And I think there's quite a kind of migration to the States as well. Nigerians are sort of everywhere. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I just <laughs> actually had an interview with one. Um, yeah. So like, and, and one of the questions I asked is like, you had a choice. You could either go to Britain or you came to the U.S. Why did you pick the U.S.? <laughs> That's an interesting one. That's an interesting one we should come back to. But one thing I should say is I was, because I knew I was going to speak to you and you were going to ask me about origins, I thought, oh goodness, like I know a lot about the Nigerian side, but I actually know very little about the Cyrillonian side. Like I've never been. And my mother has this. So my mother's surname is, um, it's Albert or Orba. And, and uh, that is a European name. Um, we don't know whether it's French or German, 
but so I kind of I, I sort of have half that there's a, there's an unknown side it's Sierra Leone we don't know sort of before after say beyond my maternal grandparents I, I don't know I, I, I actually have no connection with that history something I'd like to uncover so I have the very sort of strong and dominant Nigerian side and then the slightly mysterious Cyrillonian side but you're right the I think the Nigerian culture is a very kind of strong one and it's you know there are there's a really successful diaspora here and and a growing one in the states but there's a lot of confidence in the community because of that mm-hmm. um, yeah it is really interesting to compare actually what it is to be black british versus what it is to be black american you know um because I was reading about things like the migration down from the South. But are you sort of second generation American? Um, as a- first. So first. when both my parents came up here um, with my sister, and then they had me. So I am first generation. And it was kind of weird growing up because my mom stuck with her Trinidadian friends and Trinidadian cultures. And I'm here in the school system. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and that was known, it was called Chocolate City, because it was, you know. Wow. Yeah. And so (laughs) I didn't experience being a minority till I hit college. Okay. And so, yeah, and that's something that I want to talk about next and maybe compare education, because, okay, so you are... So it's it's secondary school, right? Is that what you call it? Like our high school is your secondary school? Exactly, exactly. Though high school sounds so much cooler, but yeah, we call it secondary. (laughs) I always used to think that when I was young. I thought, oh my God, I'm going to go to an American high school. But yeah, we call it secondary school. So you're there final year and you are applying for architecture school, correct? So this is where, so you said you don't find much about me online. Not, not exactly. So, so what actually happened to me was that I, I, there was a bit of a gap between my leaving school and my applying for architecture school. And this is around the time that I've told you about my mother being ill and that I mentioned it because it, it did have a, it's had a, you know, an effect on the structure of my career and education, actually. Uh, my parents split up when I was about 16 and I reacted quite badly to that and I had quite a few years of depression and I kind of I didn't drop out of education but it slowed my transition from high school to university down and I I call them my lost years but they're not really lost but in terms of a kind of progression traditional progression so I spent yeah a few years in that space and it was in that time I kind of transitioned let's say towards architecture I'd wanted to be a doctor and I had this kind of quite difficult time as I say when I was sort of 16 17 and I haven't thought about entirely how to describe this and it's not something I talk about much but in that time I found myself doing lots of art and that's actually when I developed the portfolio that got me into architecture school it was my place to go really during that quite depressed time Mm -hmm. so so it was a sort of it was a slow transition but yes so I'm 
some years out of school and I'm developing this portfolio and I applied to architecture school. It's kind of how it happened. What kind of medium did you use or do you still use now? So then I used to draw a lot in pencil and pastel. I used to do lots of portraits. I used to work a lot from photographs and sometimes from sometimes from life, but less so. I used to take photographs and, and sketch the city, but not so much. I was really, really focused on, on people actually. So pastels and I kind of gradually started to teach myself to use oils. Yes. So I kind of built on that foundation of, I think I first started learning to draw when I was properly, not kind of, you know, pro- properly, I, as in I would get books from the library about how to draw, you know, blah, blah, when mm-hmm. I was sort of seven or eight. And that's when my father would help me. So I was sort of building on that foundation of drawing and just I'd explore different media but the thing I really loved was pastels so chalk and oil pastels mm. so yeah. yeah like I like I love pastels I used to because I had my own period too but mine was due to the fact that I couldn't go to school for a period of time okay because I couldn't afford it and okay. that really dimmed the light for me and so I found myself gravitating towards the art store and I would get the big old pads and I would just take the pastels because it's messy Mm -hmm. and I was always like a sketcher I would just draw a line and so you were kind of definite and confident right right versus the hesitation lines so I had this thing I always draw little flowers okay like that's my doodle and then I would just take that and just be messy and my hands will be all and they'll be all over the place I I love pastels I tried watercolor but it was too I couldn't control it there was no quite hard hard to to work with quite hard to control yeah I would go and take the tape and you have to wait and I was like why am I waiting (laughs) and not read new things as well right right. it's messy Yeah. yeah yeah so so you got into architecture school. How was that? How was your education there? It, it, it was okay. Look, I, I've been lucky. There were rocky patches, but I, I was kind of lucky. I studied architectural engineering and I'm not sure where the influences came from, but I had this idea that I was going to be like the next Nervi or Calatrava. I don't know if you know their work, but they're both kind yeah. of trained as engineers. Although I was offered a place on a straight architecture degree, based on my portfolio, I wanted to do this architectural engineering thing. And uh, what I found was some really, really nurturing teachers. I had good tutors. I had people that, I met people that had faith in me, really. So I, I was very lucky. I ended up in the right place for me at that time. And I made some of my best friends, kind of lifelong friends during that, that course. So I, I went to the University of Westminster. So it was a kind of, was the University of Westminster is an, an ex-polytechnic. Polytechnics didn't exist then, but it was, I think it was the oldest polytechnic in the UK, so the first. And at that time had a very strong architecture school, <clears throat> kind of one of the top five. So that was wonderful, really, I have to say. I was kind of really nurtured and um, encouraged. And I, there are tutors that I'm still in contact with uh, and discovered 
not just design studio, but also things like I'd never studied philosophy and I first encountered it there and I absolutely loved it. And so a very happy time. And I then, after that, here we take a year out after those first three years after degree. And I, I'll, I'll skip that for now, but I then went to the Architectural Association, the AA, and that's where I did my postgrad. So we do five years in total here, three years for degree, take some time out, go back and then do two years of a, a postgrad. These days people get a master's. I have a, a postgraduate diploma. And the AA was amazing. I consider myself hugely privileged to have been able to go there. It was tough though. It was a tough transition from an architectural engineering course because the focus is less conceptual and it was tough. You talked about going to university and that being the first time you felt like a minority. Yeah. So at the AA, I was kind of a minority in a, there were very few British people there, only 10%, although oh. the school in the UK so it was hugely international so firstly I was a minority because in a, I was British secondly I was in a minority because of being black right and from a kind of relatively middle class family but the the AA is a really it's quite an elite school you get lots of sort of has a high sort of kind of elite contingent the AA is probably the first sense that I had of a kind of otherness although I loved the school and underwent a kind of intellectual transformation whilst there or mm -hmm. kind of continued progression it was amazing it was also quite a difficult place to be so it was challenging um, it wasn't because you were there was only two of you in a course or something or i don't think there were any so now i'm thinking yeah so so at the aa there was only one other black girl in my year i think it's a big school so there was definitely a sense of otherness and, and it's a sh it's a shame really because I have fond memories of that time and as I say I felt hugely privileged to get in there I mean there's no it sounds like there's no but you enjoyed it you learned a lot I, I don't I don't I don't want to. Where, where's the button? No, it, it, it was it was difficult. Um, it's really far behind me in the sort of rear view mirror. It's not a space that I visit often. We we had these open things um, that were kind of like vivas. They're called tables, and when you're in one of those, you you're kind of fighting for your project, and the table may or may not be on your side. I had a couple of those where, let's say, the table were not on my side, uh, and it's a very difficult situation and so when I found myself in a position where I had to where I was kind of fighting these battles I found myself having to repeat my final year and similar things I was sort of worried about money and had a kind of mini breakdown and so on I had the support of this tutor because I'd done a really good piece of work for him and in his opinion in, in his opinion, you know, the person who wrote that piece of work shouldn't or couldn't fail. So I was able to retrieve my fifth year, but very much through the support of that individual tutor. You know, I, I was extraordinarily lucky, but it was tough. At the end of fifth year, I had a complete breakdown. I was lucky. I was able to go and stay with my step 
father and with my father and stepmother but I had a complete breakdown I lost five kilos so this is this this was my final year Um, but I managed to graduate from that school but only with a huge amount of support a huge amount of support and much fighting Mm -hmm. I, I I skip over it because it's a long way yeah 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 think about it a lot but it did happen and it's interesting now because when I speak to uh, people at kind of BFA and they talk about their experiences I did have a kind of like a really emotional session with them once where people were talking about their experiences and I I don't encounter very many kind of black architects I hadn't these were not conversations I'd had I'm a little bit older than than them so these weren't conversations that, than the founders, I mean. So the, these weren't conversations that I'd have, I'd had. And I was kind of astounded to hear sort of how often people had had similar experiences to mine. And I, I'd never wanted to put it down to race or misogyny or, you know, any of these things. But when you start to see a kind of pattern like that, it does make one question what's going on, you know, uh-huh. in, in, in the system. It's certainly not kind of orchestrated or it may not even be conscious in, in the moment. We talk a lot these days about unconscious bias. But I realised by speaking to a larger group of people that there was a kind of pattern of experiences. They like to compare architecture with being a lawyer or being a doctor. And in this case, being a doctor, you work 12, 15 hour shifts, you have to be alert all the time. And it is rigorous training. Doctor saves lives. You can't get tired during the operating table. No, you can't get tired when you're in the emergency room. You have to know chemistry or else you give someone the wrong drug or the interactions or things. Architecture, you have to question why are you doing this? Why is it that you have a military style to break you down just mm. to build you back up? And they don't even build you back up. It's kind of just, they kind of just break you down. And if you survive, you survive. Like right. you question why is this breakdown required? Because I went through the same thing. And I talked to numerous of people on this side of the world and it's the same thing. Like, I, you know, defending myself compared to someone else. I remember there was this guy, he was always high all the time. And for his, for his final project, he did a door. He did an opening of a door. He has his drawings and everything. But the model was just a door. Mm. And he just talked and talked and talked. And they ate it up. And I'm like, he didn't go through any of the requirements. You're supposed to build a full on site. And and you come back with a door. Yeah. And what is this guy doing now? I have no idea. But it's so subjective. Like that was just an example of how subjective it is. Did yeah. he get the same energy as what I got? Absolutely not. I mean, I don't know what it's like now. I mean, I, I, I teach, but in a very, very different sort of environment, very, very different sort of setup. I, th- I think in education, we, we like to think that we've kind of moved beyond, I don't know what you call it in the States, but the sort of the, 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 the crit system. So, you know, you, you'd have these crits and it used to be very much kind of academic pitched against students 
and it was very much you know a kind of battle a little bit like being in court of an almost adversarial system and it was the, 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 only the tough would kind of survive now i believe in academic rigor this is not to to say that it should be that anything should be dumbed down or that the standards should be lower but i think that things should be fair and there needs to be an awareness of let's call it unconscious bias and i i think you're right it's not it isn't just about race and it's not nor is it just about gender you know there are elements of possibly class bias of other bias i've heard people who experienced difficulty but didn't come from but weren't you know didn't come from any of these sort of other groups so i think it's certainly it's, it's a kind of what i call it an, an intellectual elitism or kind of you know you have a sort of series of sort of intellectual cults and you kind of have to have to have to belong so i think that you know if, if we want to encourage diverse people and diverse minds to engage in architecture which we need to then this system isn't appropriate but th things are changing here yeah. as I, say, I teach and not in that sort of environment there's no sort of breaking people down to build them up it's very much kind of passe but it certainly was i was certainly educated during a time when that was very much the sort of system uh, which in those scenarios the best minds don't necessarily win through yeah so, so you graduated. Yes. And so here, once you graduate, you do three years. You need three years of experience before you set to take the exam. And once you pass the exam, you call yourself a registered architect. How is it there? So here we do three years as a degree. You take one year out. You do two years as a post-grad and then you work for a year, more likely two at a minimum, and then you take the exam, we call it part three. So these are called part one, parts one, two, and three. Uh, so you take the exam, which is part three, and then you can call yourself a registered architect. It takes a minimum of seven years here. Five of those are in full-time education. So it's five years full-time education plus two years work experience as a minimum. And how many exams is part three? Or is just one exam? Oh, goodness. I took it a very long time ago. That's a tough question. We had, I think, th two written papers. And two written papers, a case study, a kind of thesis. So it's part coursework and, mm -hmm. and part exam. I, I call it coursework, you know, part kind of final written submission. Uh, and, and the exams are long. There's a seven hour exam that's meant to kind of replicate an office scenario. You learn about uh, predominantly then UK law and you're given a scenario to kind of work through, you know, engaging a new client or whatever within a seven hour period. And then there's another shorter exam, I think. But you, so what you do is you you study that alongside working so you're working and you'll probably be doing lectures in the evening uh, or maybe there, there are there are lots of different setups but ultimately the the exam at the end is kind of similar you do a couple of written papers you submit some written work and then you have a kind of viva 
as well at the end. So ultimately you don't pass until you've had this oral exam and uh, you're deemed competent to be an architect. <laughs> the people that you sit for the oral exam, can you become them a judge? I don't know what you would call those people who... Oh, what the process of becoming an examiner? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you can. You can. I don't, I don't know what the process is. It's not something I've ever thought about doing. Ah, I wonder if I know where this is leading. As far as I know, you can apply to become part of that system. There's a, you can become an examiner or part of what's called the sort of validation board that validate architectural education in, in the UK. So it's possible. It is possible. It's not something I've ever looked into doing, though. So I don't know much about the process. Okay. All right. Because here you become a registered architect in the state that you applied for. Okay. So, you know, like there's 50 states. So each state has their own regulations. So in the state of California, for example, once you pass all of the written examinations, there's not written, I should say, this is just a, a test. Like you just sit down in a computer lab and you just click, click, click. There's a secondary exam where they test you on California law specifically and you know, there's earthquakes over in that side and there's an oral component for that. So in Maryland, for example, you just gotta take the exam and that's it, you're just a licensed architect. So every state has their requirement. If I wanna work in New York, I would have to file, go through the process of New York. They may have their own requirement, I don't think they do. But, and they'll, you pay them money, of course. And then they're like, okay, you, you pass all of our requirements. You are, you are legally allowed to work in the state of New York. Okay. Yeah. So it's, you have a more complex system because you have a different law, you have different laws in each state. And uh, yeah, whereas here you pass it. I mean, we're a tiny country, right? So there's one board, there's one exam. And then you. So if you want to work in Scotland, or you have to go through them to. No, you don't. No, 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 no. Sorry, that exam qualifies you to practice in the United Kingdom. So that's Great Britain and Ireland, Northern Ireland. And pre-Brexit, there was a reciprocal agreement which meant that we could also practice in Europe. I have no idea what's going to happen. You know we're in the middle of negotiating trade deals and things like that. They're in a slight state of flux and uh, who knows where we will be next year. But right. at, the, at the moment, <laughs> as stand, I can practice in Europe. You have to, there is a process to go through, uh, but it doesn't involve taking more exams. Okay, so to, to backtrack slightly, I was really ambitious. I wanted to work at what I considered at that time to be kind of top practices, you know, kind of international practices. And uh, so I did that for, for several years, not quite a decade, but quite a long time. And, uh, you know, and that, and that was great as far as it went. I developed a lot as a designer and uh, learned about the practice of architecture. But in terms of fulfilling my kind of wider social ambitions, the work that I was doing at that time didn't fulfill those aspirations. 
And uh, I guess I had a series of epiphanies. I'll call them a series of epiphanies. So I'm working in commercial practice and, and doing pretty well. But I have a kind of some sort of niggling doubts about whether it's right for me, whether what I'm doing is right for me. And a uh, kind of mini, not existential crisis, that's sort of taking it a little bit far. But what happened was, so one evening, I, I visited the theatre with a friend that I'd made at architecture school at the AA. And we were both uh, really into theatre. And so this is really close to where I live. We went to a, a small local theatre in an area that's just starting to gentrify. So, so I said like a little bit like Brooklyn or Williamsburg. And um, at that time, so this was pre-Uber, and uh, we were trying to hail a taxi, uh, a black cab, and they wouldn't stop. So as I say, this was kind of, this was an area that was just starting to gentrify, but still was still considered a little bit rough by some. It was an area with a kind of high, like large artist population. It was at that stage of its gentrification process. So still a little bit rough, but quite cool, she says. So taxis wouldn't stop. And I remember thinking about why that was and being really irritated and annoyed, you know, with the fact that it was considered a kind of a, a sort of rough area and I thought that it seemed like a taxis wouldn't stop and that seemed to me to be quite kind of racially motivated you know that, that there was a kind of thing about certain parts of the city being considered black areas and although London isn't segregated in the way bits of America are but at that time you know, there, there were parts of the city where taxis wouldn't stop and this was one of them. And so I was trying to hail a, a taxi for my friend who, who was German. And so I think I possibly had a, a slight kind of sense of not almost being embarrassed, but you know, this was my neighborhood and taxis wouldn't stop or quite kind of quite close to my neighborhood. And then a couple of minutes later, a girl, a woman, a white woman fell off her bicycle and she was then surrounded by a group of youths, predominantly black youths. The youngest was maybe about nine and the oldest may have been 19. And they started laughing at her and, and filming her on their mobile phone. And in that moment, I was extremely conflicted. I was annoyed about the taxis not stopping. And then I thought, well, this is why they're not stopping. So I had this weird kind of tension of, emotions and after kind of finally seeing my friend off into this taxi I then carried on walking towards my home which was maybe another couple of miles down the same street and I passed this group of boys and uh, I had had a glass of wine and I I confronted them absolutely bonkers I think now but I confronted them <laughs> I'm on my own walking home and this is a group not one or two but a group of boys you know young men and I said to them what are you even doing out I'm so ashamed about this now I'm so embarrassed I said to them you know you should all be at home doing your homework so I have these ridiculous kind of middle class values you should be at home doing your homework you're all going to end up in prison like by the time you're 20 you'll either be dead or in prison and uh, they looked at me like who the hell are you like right. you know to tell us what we should be doing and I carried on arguing with them, like some kind of schoolmistress or something. And then one of them actually 
then flashed a knife at me and he said, he said, you know, this is why people like you get stabbed. And I'd had enough wine that I didn't actually stop arguing with him in that moment. <laughs> and um, so then what happened was that a shopkeeper pulled me away and said, hey, they will stab you, you know, and not even think about it. So just let it be. But after I kind of got over the shock and my goodness, what was I doing kind of arguing with a group of teenagers on the street? I kind of thought, you know, I kind of examined that a lot in retrospect. And I thought about that kind of frontier that they were existing at, you know, that this, this area that was gentrifying the spaces that were being developed, that they were excluded from this white woman who comes along on a bicycle who kind of, you know, personifies this, this new world that they're excluded from. And I kind of, and then I was annoyed at myself at not being, not sympathetic. It was, it was a genuine kind of anguish. You guys are going to waste your lives. You will go to jail or die before you reach your 20th birthdays, because this is what happens here in London. And I know it's similar in the States, right? Yeah. I had a moment of thinking that what I do for a living the way I'm doing it in this moment will not impact this situation. And I just had a, so that was my moment of kind of having a shift of values or, or it's starting to feel more urgent that what I do, I love designing. I love making beautiful things, but it also suddenly became much more urgent to tackle the kind of social inequalities and injustices that lead to a group of youths feeling that kind of disenfranchised that you know that they kind of resort to anger and violence you know it's that I kind of had a slow so it was a, it was a slow uh, process of shifting but I knew soon after that that I that this wasn't where I wanted to be mm -hmm. um, so I slowly started shifting my career and uh, I mean I've, t I've taken it off in a slightly kind of unusual direction with the, with the sort of filmmaking but for me that was about so whilst at architecture school I, I joined a unit so at the AA I was part of a unit and, and you know this is one of the things I loved but I got to do film as part of my architectural education and what I realized what I slowly came to realize is what is what a powerful tool film is for communicating and for changing the way people think and for amplifying voices so now I'm not entirely answering your question but I've slowly moved my career to a place where you know at the moment it's very much about filmmaking and it's, it's about amplifying trying to encourage people to participate in the process of creating the built environment and showing them that you can be part of that. So, so the film I'm making at the moment about female architects of colour is about amplifying their voices, amplifying our voices, but also saying to young people that whatever background you're from, you can be part of this process and try to encourage people to become part of the process of creating and changing their environments. The reason was that I wanted to 
the move towards um, affecting change. I suppose if I'm being kind of really critical in retrospect, what I recognized is that working in the sort of big practices in the way that I was, I was sort of part of the problem for these communities, kind of part of um, the process of creating environments and parts of the cities from which they were excluded as opposed to kind of participatory processes that involve people in, in changing their own world. I wanted to shift towards that, which seemed to make more sense to me. So you picked up the camera <laughs> <laughs> and the XX AOC project and yeah. then there was a She Draws, She Builds. Yes. So She Draws, She Builds is a film that I made uh, a couple of years ago. And uh, the way that came about is that I decided to go it alone and I'm still sort of finding my feet and kind of looking for networks. It's very difficult to, to get a small practice going. And so in that time, I was sort of looking for people to connect with and thinking about how I might use uh, film more as part of my practice. And I came across this group of women or I was introduced to this group of women, which was, which was led by Anna Chabel, with whom I currently work on women in architecture. And uh, she was sort of, she'd started this conversation with this group of women where they were sort of talking about their lives as architects and what it was like to be a woman in practice. And uh, I kind of went along to a couple of their sessions and then there was a conversation around kind of recording what they were doing and getting that out to a wider audience. And essentially I became the filmmaker for that project. I kind of offered my, my kind of, my skills and services. And so, we made that film over a period of a year or so, um, interviewing, interviewing women. As, a, as I say, that project was largely focused around gender. And so that was the kind of beginning, I suppose, of that kind of process of documentary filmmaking and starting to kind of try to amplify the voices of groups of architects that were sort of underrepresented. And then XXOC, the next project so that's that was my this xxoc is my next film project and what i realized whilst making she draws is that there were other stories that weren't being told i wanted to focus on female architects of color partly because i am one but partly because we only really touch on it in she draws and something else happened which was that i started thinking about and i wasn't the only one black females in architecture were also thinking about it but about the kind of lack of data and information lack of kind of historical data there was particularly here in the uk so in america you have you have this amazing system where you kind of you've numbered all your black architects we don't have anything like that here so you know the data doesn't exist we only started recording information about ethnic origin about 10 years ago. Mm. So I couldn't tell you who the first black woman to register as an architect was in the UK. So I became kind of really interested in answering that question. And actually the first kind of pitch or sort of incarnation of this documentary idea was to uncover that. And the idea was that alongside that, there would be a series of interviews with black women who were practicing architects and so i mean in the process of making that film now so xxoc is it's partly a research project 
to uncover this historical information. And it's a documentary which, which explores the work of female architects of colour now, partly to kind of, you know, showcase them and amplify their voices. So there's sort of two strands to the project and kind of sort of depending on how the, the research pans out, that may or may not feed into the film. It's really difficult to uncover this data because it, it's not information that's been recorded, you know. So if, if you look back through sort of college lists of names, they won't record ethnicity. So mm-hmm. it's really difficult. So you have to, yeah, so it's a, a sort of longer exercise. But it seemed really important to me to know, you know, who was she? I call her kind of XXAOC01, like who was she in the UK? Um, and we don't know. So that's, so that's the project, really. How did you get to New York? <laughs> yeah. And, and it seems you have this love affair with Miss, with, with I said Miss, she's a doctor, Dr. Sutton. Like how, how did that romance start? <laughs> Dr. Sutton, the amazing Dr. Sutton. So it's kind of, it's all part of the XXOC project. So what happened was I started making that film and started tweeting about it and black females in architecture were doing their thing. And then there is a woman called uh, Danai Cesario. I hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly, but Danai is an advisor with black females in architecture. And uh, she, as you Americans say, reached out to me and- uh, You say it. She reached out. It's, I think it's a very, yeah, American thing to say. Okay, all right. I, I, I have no idea what would be the equivalent of... of no, of reaching out. But it, yeah, but it, you know, it is what it says on the tin. So she, she reached out, okay. never met before. And then I was putting together this conference as part of your, as part of the NOMA? Yes. NOMA exactly. So she had this proposal, Global Grassroots Panel. So it was me, XXAOC, Black Females in Architecture, and then Dami Lee Lawrence of Perkins and Will. We were invited to New York by Danai, and uh, Black Females in Architecture came along and uh, set up a kind of meet and greet, and I joined that. They kind of invited me to, to be a guest, let's say. And Dr. Sutton, what happened was, so I wanted to make this documentary, and I thought, well, the reason I'm making the documentary is because we don't know who the female architects of colour are. So I tweeted, you know, I, I sent a tweet out to the Twitter sphere um, asking whose stories I should be telling, who were the female architects of colour. And uh, I have to say that the majority of responses or a huge portion of res- responses came from America. And Dr. Sutton was one of the, it may have been the first or second, like one of the, the really early tweets. Mm-hmm. And so I started researching her. And, uh, and then I, goodness, I, I found some information about her online. And then I sent an entirely cold email saying, I'm doing this project. Can I interview you? And I thought it would just go off into the kind of weeds because some emails did. I didn't hear back from some people, mm-hmm. but she put back. And she said, uh, the thing is, I sent a prospective list of questions and she wrote back and she said, well, yes, I'll be part of your project, but your questions are a bit generic. So this is what I've written. Do some research and come back. <laughs> and <get a> question. 
That is what happened. Sounds um, about right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was kind of absolutely on point. I sent this kind of, not silly, but you know, it was a very generic list mm -hmm. of questions. And uh, so I went away and read her work. And that's epiphany number two for me in my kind of transition. Just kind of uncovering her work, particularly in weaving a tapestry of resistance and just kind of the way she's kind of dedicated her career to giving back but also to empowering and I thought wow this is where it's at you know this is the kind of work I want to be doing and I'm going to learn as much about this woman's work as as possible so we we did this interview and she was amazingly generous and erudite and and all these things so I was just very very lucky it's a combination of being lucky having a tiny bit of footspa, you know, sending out these, this cold email, but largely due to her generosity because people don't always say yes and mm. people aren't necessarily generous in interviews. And she was and has been subsequently. So, yeah, that's, that's how it started, just completely sort of luck and chance. And also, you guys are so cute together. Look at that. <laughs> She, yeah, she, she's amazing. There are, of course, kind of black female mentors, but you know, she's what an incredible career and what kind of body of work. Mm -hmm. yeah. Definitely. So you recently hosted a panel called mm -hmm. Coronavirus, a great leveler. And it was part of the London Festival of Architecture. Yes. How has the pandemic affect you? and your current research? Do you mean me as an individual or do you mean me as a, I mean. Um, as let's, okay, so let's start with the London, the, with the coronavirus and the. Yeah, with, with the thing. So, yeah. so what happened was, so, so we in London went into lockdown late March and kind of two, three weeks in, stories started to emerge about the disparity in deaths and initially, you know, between, between races. And initially at that point it was, I was reading articles about the disparity of deaths in the NHS and we actually lost uh, a family friend who was the fourth NHS doctor to die here in the UK. Mm. And so I was, partly because of that, I was sort of paying lots of attention to the media and stories around this. And uh, at that time, Emily Makeless in the introduction to uh, Newsnight, the programme that she present said this thing she said coronavirus is not a great leveler the effects of which rich and poor experience alike so my talk was coronavirus a great leveler question mark you know mm -hmm. and and emily made words were that this is a myth we need to debunk and so at that time this is a couple of months ago people were sort of still coming out with it, that kind of you know this little sort of cliche this sort of talking about the idea that you know anyone can get coronavirus you know it, do, it doesn't discriminate that's that's where this line came from and so after hearing that I started then sort of reading about the figures and I thought this is really something then it became a story the inequality not just here but in America so the kind of disparity in death rates and the fact that people's work circumstances were potentially kind of 
exposing them, to, you know, to, to the coronavirus, that there, there was an, a kind of inequality across sort of professions and living circumstances and, and all of these things factored into how likely people were to catch coronavirus and then how likely they, they were to die. And I also suspected that there were other factors at play and we still don't have the answers. It's still being investigated. But so, for example, the family friend that died was uh, he was an NHS consultant. So socioeconomics didn't really play a role in, you know, in his death. He wasn't someone who lived in an overcrowded household or was kind of poor. So I just became curious about why these inequalities exist and beyond the socioeconomic things that we kind of know about. And, and, and so that's why. And then I thought, well, XXAOC, what an amazing group of women, you know, Dr. Sutton right through the, the entire list of people I've interviewed and would like to interview. And it just seemed to me that they were a perfect group of people to discuss this topic. So hence bringing the panel together. And then obviously in the, the wake of that, uh, not in the, the wake of that, but since, you know, since the idea was first floated, there's obviously been the death of George Floyd um, and everything that's unfolded where you are and the kind of transatlantic sort of global conversation around racial inequality and police brutality. So it all sort of came together in a, in a moment, kind of, you know, not one that we would have chosen, but that's kind of how it, how, how things came together. Yeah. It's you guys, toppled the statue you dragged it and put it in the water that's what i heard <laughs> it, happened. it happened a statue was toppled here and then you guys started toppling statues oh it's just, it became like a thing right it's a thing and then now they're changing names changing names of schools plaza in washington black lives matter yeah well the as far as like there's a high school called i think it's robert e lee so yeah the new thing now is changing names of schools schools yeah and and streets as well but i think that was like a sort of performance art that was a performance thing on 16th street into the white house and that's where the the black lives matter has been painted on the road and then the mayor changed street that that intersection into yeah yeah and i saw that online yeah which i thought was pretty cool and when i first saw it online actually i hadn't realized that that was a kind of uh, state sanctioned you know bit of uh, activism and yeah. so I, i'm like wow that's amazing what these guys are doing i mean it's still amazing but uh, yeah at the time when i first saw it i hadn't realized that it was a sort of orchestrated thing statues and, and roads is going to fall and uh, I mean it's, it's really interesting I think this toppling statues thing I mean what they did in Bristol you know great good on them it's not a very nice man but also there had been a, a sort of process a kind of uh, democratic process that hadn't been honoured there'd been a petition with over 10,000 signatures asking for that statue to go so you know I think uh, it was his time yeah, it was pretty. I'm pretty sure there was a couple of um, yeah. instances where they wanted some of these statues down, and they've just been procrastinating. And exactly, and we're doing. We're just gonna do it for you. We're just yeah. gonna do it for you. What's your last name for me? Oh, oh goodness. Um, okay, wait, 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 wait. Let me let me see if I can get this right because I was practicing. Yeah, um, Akia 
Akia Ben, Akia Bogen, Bogan. Oh, that's, yeah, that's closer. Um, Aki Bogan. Aki Bogan. Okay. Yeah, that's how I say it anyway. It's, yes, it's pronounced differently depending on, yeah, that's how I pronounced it as someone who's lived all my life in London. Aki Bogan. <laughs> so, I'm apologizing to all the people who will hear that and go, really? But that's how I pronounce it. Okay. <laughs> how did, did you ever ask your father, how did the name Sarah come out? Like, why did they name you Sarah? Or is that? No, I don't know. That's such a good question. I spent most of my childhood wanting to be called something else. Now I've accepted it. I don't know. I think it was just, you know, like a, it's a good English name. My mother has a Christian first name because, because Creoles do. So both my parents had this very kind of anglicized, well, my father certainly had a very anglicized upbringing. So they were probably just very kind of, it would have been to do with that, that there were lots of sort of English influences in their lives. And also they're not from the same country. So they might not have, you know, they mightn't have been a sort of common, they weren't coming from a common place. So they wouldn't have just gone, oh yeah, we'll give her a, a Nigerian name or a Ceylonian name. But I think that because of their, their own upbringings, because of my mum being Creole and having an English name and my father having grown up here, that the idea of giving me an English name probably wasn't such an odd thing. But I do have a Nigerian surname, not surname, middle name, obviously, which is, so my name is Sarah Abimbola. And I don't use the Abimbola much. But some of my aunties might call me, that's, that's how it's pronounced. Sometimes I get that, but yeah, Sarah. <laughs> um, Names I've, oh, I was going to say, what's your, so with the podcast, what's your ambition? Or... Oh, my ghost. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I, I, I like talking to people. It's Yeah, you're very personable and you're very open, you're very open as well. So you make it kind of easy. And, and, you know, I did this because there weren't any black female podcasters talking about architecture. No. And having the interviews, interviewing people that I'm interested in hearing. Last week, I talked to a black student. And that was, I, I love that conversation. Because it was a casual conversation. And it, it wasn't, let me tell you how to do, you know, with the feeling yeah. and I'm older and I know more. At least I felt like I didn't do that. They may have been like something else, but um, it's, it's, it, it was, it was, it came out of frustration. It came out of like, just, I just, people need to hear from all spectrums of black and brown excellence in, in this field. So, yeah, but. it's a great thing. Great thing that you're doing more power to you. And you too. I got attracted to you because a black female filmmaker in architecture. What? Yeah. Like we, you, you're doing it. I, I, I support you a gazillion percent. So Lola is this little precocious young woman who's, or she's a girl, um, but she wants to be an architect. So talking about inspiring younger people to consider this profession. So she's this, this young girl who grows up in a rickety old Victorian house and loves to draw and, and wants to become an architect. So she can make the world better, blah, 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 all of that stuff. But she's traveling in a kind of environmentally friendly way. 
She's traveling around the world with a zero carbon footprint and uh, she's visiting architecture and she's going to visit as many buildings created by people, women of color as possible, not exclusively because I love the Colosseum in Rome or whatever. So that's a kind of ongoing project. And she is going to become, the, the ambition is that becomes a little book and maybe like a little film, like a short kind of animated film. That, so that will be a kind of slow burn. But that's, yeah, that's, that's something that's quite kind of close to my heart. And uh, yeah, trying to diversify the profession, but to get, get some young folk. And I recognise that the profession needs restructuring that it's a difficult profession to be in as a as a, as a black person and that there are lots of issues around income and working conditions and and so on so sometimes i wonder whether that's a responsible thing to do but i think we need to we do need people of color in the, in, in the profession we need people from all classes and we need to tackle the issues around around the structure of the profession and and poor working conditions in order to make it more accessible so that's yeah. how I kind of so that potential criticism because some people say is it responsible to encourage people this isn't necessarily about race it's partly about kind of means whether or not people have financial means to to sustain an architectural education and career but my answer to that is that we need to change working conditions and improve them so that people from all backgrounds can be part of this profession Sorry, that's my little like political. No, I mean architecture is political. We gotta we gotta add that stuff. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. <laughs> Sarah, you've been awesome. Thank you so much. Um, thank you for giving me so much of your time. No, no. Now I can stalk you and love you like you love sharing. <laughs> Did so. Mm. Uh, thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good <laughs> evening, afternoon, rest of you day. Too. Have a good night. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, listeners. I have an exciting announcement. I decided to launch a membership program for the show where you have a chance to support me and the show directly. I love creating this show, and it means the world to me that you all tune in to keep hearing me week after week. But it takes an immense amount of time and energy to produce. I want to keep the show going, and I want to invest in its growth. And I also want you to become a partner with me in this journey. That's why I'm excited to give you a chance to officially become a supporter of the show at glow.fm slash archispolly, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-O-L-L-Y, or by clicking the link in the show notes. It's quick and easy. It takes less than 30 seconds and just takes clicking a link in the show notes and using Apple or Google Pay. You don't have to create any new logins and you can contribute as much or as little as you like. If this show is part of your day or week and you like what I'm doing, then visit glow.fm slash all one word, and support me and the show in any way you can today. <laughs>